Welcome to Abacus Briefs, the podcast that faces off two real-life CPAs against Canada's current events. This podcast is sponsored by the CPA offices of KMP CPAs. For entertainment purposes, is not intended for financial or taxation advice and does not form a client engagement relationship. Remember, do not take financial or tax advice from a podcast. Here are Gus and Igor. All right, welcome to Abacus Briefs. So you're listening to our inaugural podcast, our very first, uh, our ver- very first run at the at the game. So Abacus Briefs, we're we're essentially uh, starting a podcast that's dedicated to give you, the general public, some uh, in-depth advice about accounting and tax matters, and again, making it available to you. We're going to come here pretty much on a regular basis and try to cut through the fog and get get you the information you need from a financial setting. And you're going to be listening to some some very qualified people to get you that, and we'll all do that in in some good spirit and have a little bit of fun. So I, I have Gus with me. Gus, why why did we start Abacus Briefs? Well, everybody loves free advice. And uh, let's be honest, good advice is expensive. <laughs> but we're hoping to engage you and provide dialogue, a summary of current events and how it relates to you from an accounting and a tax perspective. And as this podcast matures, it'll also be a platform to get your questions answered directly from us. Um, And, you know, we both do have a lot of experience. We might not have all the answers to your questions, but we know where to find them and and we'll get them for you. So let's let's get the introductions out of the way. Igor. All right. Um, So my name is Igor. I've been in public accounting for um, over a decade now and uh, worked in a bunch of settings. So uh, firstly, I'm a licensed CPA uh, and I hold a public accounting license. And uh, some of my background is I also hold licenses in forensic investigations and internal audit, uh, do a bunch of financial modeling and everything else. Uh, All in all, my experience centers around the accounting, finance advice. I worked on mergers, acquisitions, transactions, all of that other wonderful stuff that that, uh, we get engaged as, as, uh, I guess, uh, beginning career CPAs. And uh, listen, now uh, co-founded a uh, a small boutique firm with, uh, with Gus sitting next to me where uh, we continue to do more of the same, but uh, for a broader audience, I would say. Gus, um, so how about you? Yeah, actually, I, I got into the accounting profession indirectly. Uh, you know, my, my father always jokes with me and says, I, I could have been a doctor with the amount of education I have. <laughs> he <because> wishes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I went through, uh, did, did my engineering, decided, you know, that wasn't, that w- that wasn't for me. So why, why not go back to school, spend some more money and uh, get my accounting degree? And then I, I as well did, uh, uh, I'm a licensed uh, public accountant as well. Worked over 10 years in, in public practice in a large and uh, mid-sized firm. I've worked in industry in terms of um, providing financial reporting to both public and private companies and doing uh, accounting for, for tax and tax planning as well. And like Igor said, we, we both co-founded uh, Small Boutique Practice and uh, uh, you know really enjoying uh, providing the services to smaller, uh, smaller sized companies and entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, it's fun. It's fun. Okay, well, now, now that we got that into the way, that's enough about us. Um, so what we're going to be talking about in like the, the I guess the format of the podcast, 
We're going to talk about a bunch of segments. So we have a few things. So Gus and I are, are quite opinionated individuals. Uh, you're, yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you say you're more opinionated or am I more opinionated? I think it's a, it's an equal Maybe level. Equal, yeah. equal level. Yeah. Equally high, I would say. <laughs> so, so we got a few segments. We're going to talk about things like we're going to talk current events. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the market. We're going to talk about some business news. Um, we're going to have a few segments where we hope to bring on some interesting people for you to listen to when you get sick of listening to us. And uh, as Gus alluded to, we're going to have a little bit of a question segment. So where we're going to try to tackle some of your uh, some of your accounting questions and tax questions and see what we can do there. Um, at the end of the day, the, the objective of the podcast is to engage you guys and to give you that inside look. Finance doesn't have to be complicated. Like we said at the beginning, we're trying to cut through the fog. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things, and I think uh, everyone would benefit from seeing our perspective on how current events and things play out in the world today. Like it, it's mid-February 2019. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot to talk about. So we're going to get started. guys so why don't you tell us a little bit about your take on current events today all right so uh gus our first our first little segment so we're going to talk about uh, a recent ecos research i hope i'm saying that correctly so 69 percent of canadians support a wealth tax of two percent on personal assets above 50 million dollars so th- this is i guess a research poll prompted by i i'm not sure what uh, but I guess the reality is there isn't any there isn't any legislation uh, proposed or anything even run by the political parties that that I'm aware of where they talk about uh, any sort of wealth tax. So I mean, let, let's maybe kind of discuss this a little bit. Like, what what is a wealth tax? What's the point of a wealth tax? How, how does this, how is this all supposed to work? Yeah, I think. Uh, listen, it's a it's an interesting topic, and I think. Our government is is in support of the extremely wealthy, uh, both businesses and and personal, because they're getting financial backing. So uh, you know they're incentivized to keep those people rich. The lobby group. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, you know, like I think the general concept of a wealth tax makes sense because right now we're we're moving. The trend is always for the wealth to be moving into a smaller and smaller segment like one like less than one percent of the population has has an extra an abundance of wealth that they're not able to even spend themselves right so uh why not redistribute these assets and 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 put them to better use right so uh how could this benefit the 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 average person well i think it it would have to be spread between you know healthcare infrastructure maybe implementing some sort of uh minimum income level for for all how about some public dental insurance (laughs) (laughs) i I was actually reading uh, the other day something where there's there's a lot of countries i think in europe that that do have dental insurance covered i think Canada is one of the few public health systems where if you want to go to the dan- dentist, you have to be broke. Yeah, you're on your own. You're on your own for that <laughs> one. Yeah. So I guess something like that could be funded potentially by something like a wealth tax. It, it, does it all have to go into social programs or can they can they stop taxing the rest of us? Yeah, listen, I think uh, something there's something to be said about how complex the tax code is today, right? So some sort of uh, measure to simplify and and maybe yeah the the extremely wealthy are going to get a little bit more tax uh but you know for the benefit of the greater community i think 
you know, work. Yeah. yeah. How does someone get around it? So, like, as you and I both know, like, tax code is uh, the reason why. So, so for those who don't know, the the actual income tax act. We we every year get this this massive book that has to be like drop shipped from a helicopter effectively onto our lawns uh, because it weighs like three and a half kilograms and it has over what is a four thousand pages something insane yeah yeah and I think the the way it works now is you know uh, tax code back in the day was established uh, under military rule for a finite period of time in order to fund fund the the efforts right? right so and and then it, it just sort of continued on and and it's it kind of been literally <laughs> snowballed yeah it's, it's <laughs> snowballed and it, instead of you know taking in a holistic view and kind of redoing the act every once in a while they just kind of patchwork it and and now it's it's become this this behemoth where uh you know like if anyone wanted to read this uh it's it, it's it's extremely complicated and, yeah. and to have someone that doesn't have any experience um from a tax perspective, it's 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 impossible. So yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And then, and then I guess when when they introduce something like a wealth tax and they put it like, what could you see? Like, how would it be evaluated? Like, how would you think? Uh, yeah, listen, that's that's a good question, right? Um, I think um, there there are people that are asset rich and right. and have um, you know maybe they have real estate, uh, maybe their assets are in gold. Like, who knows what it is, but. Um, like to tax that might be a little bit more difficult. I, I would think it would need to be like on a certain income level, right? So like if you're you're in the the top one percent and you're you're earning over you know a million dollars a year annually, I think you're you're kind of fitting into that bu- bucket of, of fitting into that one percent. And I think you just you you get taxed at source there. I think that would be the easiest way. Yeah. Okay. And from like investment income and and yeah, absolutely, so just so have like have all, like a investment income below you, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Perfect. Yeah. And I guess the uh, the other thing I, I think is really interesting. So even if they were to implement that and put that in the in the tax code, like what are the alternatives that we have in Canada right now? So if if you want to transfer wealth between generations. What what are business people currently doing? So if I if I own a company, I'm sitting on whatever ten million bucks. Uh, I'm nearing that age where I'm going into the pasture, where my my family's <laughs> putting me into the pasture. Uh, what what am I doing uh, in order to sort of keep that wealth in the family? Yeah, that's 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 a good question. I think um, you know a lot of families, the the, the wealthy families, are, are are dealing with that all the time, and. You know they come to us for advice, and you know we have to be frank and 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 tell them you know within a couple generations that that wealth is lost. So how do you maximize the transfer? It's it's usually through through uh, vehicles like either you know shares of a company or a trust, and and you have sort of this control of how the wealth is being distributed to the to the children or to your your spouse, and. Um, that that kind of at least controls the flow of money a little bit more because uh you know like i feel like that generation worked hard to to make all the money and then the next generation usually ends up spending it right yeah so yeah and and i guess like for for us uh like there isn't really an estate tax if you will like the u.s U.S. has something a little bit more intense in terms of the transfer of wealth generation-wise. For for us, it's just, I guess, a bump up of fair market value. What's the... Yeah, yeah. So well, just a little bit uh, in layman's for, terms. Let's yeah, say. for for all of our listeners that have no idea what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I... 
you know, on on death, what the the natural transfer of of all your assets to the next individual um, is usually tax free to your spouse, and then beyond that, there's going to be what's known as a deemed disposition, which means all of your assets are uh, deemed to be sold as of that date and and taxed. So um, on on I guess the difference between whatever right. they cost and whatever. Yeah. Their value is at the time of death. Right, exactly. Right. Well, do do you see the wealth tax working? Is this something that's gonna that's actually gonna make something better in the Canadian system right now? Yeah, and I, I think it's easy for us to sit back here and speculate and and say, oh yeah, we should just tax the super wealthy. Uh, but how does it actually work? Um, you know, I, I I don't see it working where um, we. In our current system right now, if we tax the one percent, yeah, maybe we'd get another twelve to fifteen billion dollars, like Canadian dollars annually. Uh, but how is that money being spent? Like we we have zero purview into that, right? Like the they federal budget will release and some numbers, and and like beyond that, like the control is limited to the actual uh, like usage of those funds. Um, but you know, I I'd see a better a better solution being. Um, some sort of incentive for those uh, extremely wealthy individuals to spend the money, right. and then they can get behind, you know, whatever whatever venture they want to. So you see people doing that today, like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, like they have their own foundations where they're funneling a ton of money uh, into things they believe in, um, you know. And I think that's something we can all get behind. Like a pseudo-government social policy. Yeah, yeah. Like, a, you know, it would be something where um, they are incentivized. They get maybe a tax credit, um, you know, on their personal taxes um, based on how much money they're spending up to a certain threshold. Um, I see that working better personally. Right, right. All right. Let's, let's, move, in. let's move into our next, uh, next segment then. Gus, we've been waiting real patiently for this part of the podcast. Let's talk market updates. So on to our next topic. Um, so a Fortune article here uh, that we, we encountered says Amazon will pay a whopping zero in federal taxes on $11.2 billion in profits. So that, that got my attention for sure. And uh, maybe many of our listeners as well. So I, I got to ask, like, is, is this real? What do you think, Igor? <laughs> It's it's funny it's funny how things are are portrayed in the media sometimes. So I, I think we got to step back and understand the Amazon business model and really really kind of delve into how they've been making business. And and I think listeners will, would appreciate understanding from day one. Amazon's strategy has been to to do what we call just sandbagging the company. So they they spent an inordinate amount of money trying to get into the market, capture the market share, like get into stores, like in terms of, uh, let's say, wholesaler relationships, get shipping relationships at bargain basement prices. They have spent years accumulating tons of losses like left right and center their entire strategy has centered around we got to gain market share and we have to spend the money to do it the objective was and, and this you can follow this in the market so you can see there's a lot of hype at amazon and i mean that's why i always make the joke when 
the the person at the cash register at No Frills. I, I go to No Frills. I, I can't afford Whole Foods yet. Um, <laughs> but but the person at the cash register is talking about Amazon and sort of and, and just like the 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 price earnings ratio and things like that. Where where clearly Amazon is a very successful company, but a lot of the market is driven off of future perceptions of the company. So what is the company going to be earning in the future? So a lot of the current market price is based on that future speculation, which is great. Now, Amazon has taken its time and has taken a lot of effort in terms of looking at uh, where they could spend the money. And they've been spending it very wholesomely throughout the time. So now they're getting into this area where they're becoming profitable. Because like we, we had this phone conversation just a couple of days ago. Did you buy Amazon Prime? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> listen, the convenience there, um, I think nobody nobody can argue, right? Uh, I think this this past Christmas season, like there's there was more spending online than in than in stores. Like, uh, you yeah. know, I went to the mall the other day and it, like I was surprised um, how little uh, foot traffic there was throughout yeah. these malls. Like people are just buying things online now. It's it's simpler, uh, especially with Amazon Prime. You get free shipping. Why not take advantage of that? We're actually not funded by Amazon yeah. Prime. Yeah, these, are all, these are yeah. all personal <laughs> yeah. personal observations. But but that's exactly it. So Amazon's starting to be profitable. They've captured a lot of the market share. They've earned a lot of money. So what does that mean? Well, listen, it means the exact same thing when, for example, our listeners start a business and you're going to spend, let's say, the first three, four years accumulating losses. You're going to have a lot of losses that are that are built up over the period. And what does that mean? Does that mean you lose that money forever? No. What happens is, especially with the Canadian um, the taxation system, what happens is if you've accumulated three to four years of losses and you show a profit in the fifth year, you're able to deduct the losses from the past few years against this year. So your your taxes payable becomes significantly less than it would be if you never accrue those losses to begin with. Now, Amazon's situation is a little bit more complicated and I'm, I'm really simplifying it, but the, the sheer sensationalism of this article makes it sound like Amazon is exploiting in, insane loopholes in terms of not paying paying taxes. And, and that may not be entirely accurate. I'm sure Amazon has a very qualified tax team that has set up uh, a Christmas tree worth of holding companies and everything else in order to make sure their tax position in the U.S. is efficient, uh, to say the least. But at the same time, you have to look at it from a bigger picture. And Amazon has taken its lumps, has taken its losses, and has spent years sandbagging the company to finally realize some some uh, stable profits over the last little while. Yeah, I think it's 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 very easy to to kind of look at an article like this and be. Uh, feel a little slighted that oh my god they're you know this company's making billions of dollars and it's putting putting other retailers out of business um, but yeah like to look at the the continuum in isolation and not realize for the past decade or more that this company has been expanding its market um, you know at the expense of of profitability is is uh, you know it's a narrow view for sure. Yeah. There, there's one other thing that that I'd love I'd love it if listeners uh, took took some credence to the the way that the way that you structure a business like net income and the amount of taxes you pay for any one company isn't a very sensible figure on its own. So I'll give you the example of a small business. We got a bunch of small business clients where 
they're not showing a whole lot of net income and there's not a lot of taxes that are being paid, but they're very profitable companies. And I'll tell, I'll tell you why that's even the case. In the most basic of companies, what happens is, let's say Gus and I start a company and we have a small little corporation, it makes a million dollars in revenue. We have our costs, we have our debt, whatever, we pay whatever expenses we need. And at the end, we're left with, let's say, $300,000 that we can split. If we pay that as salary to Gus and myself directly, well, guess what? Our net income is zero because we've now deducted the salary out of the business. Guess how many taxes that business is going to have to pay? Zero. The only taxes that are going to be paid are going to be at Gus and my personal level. So once the money leaves the company, and listen, Amazon could have all sorts of structures, like it could have been paying fees to related companies, it could be paying fees to semi-related companies, it could be doing a bunch of stuff. But the amount of taxable income that it has really depends on how they structure the business. And something like looking just at a sliver of an ama- like a very, very large organization, it's very difficult to look at it and say, well, this is unfair. Look yeah. how much, look how much is uh, how much they're paying and yeah, it's and, really hard to and, see. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. Like, uh, you know, we're, we're talking specifically about corporate taxes here. Like there's, uh, unfortunately in the system we're in, there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of different taxes. We're paying payroll taxes. We're paying, uh, you know, indirect taxes in the form of HST. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we're getting some rebates in terms of income tax credits. Um, and then corporate taxes and personal taxes. So uh, to lump taxes into one bucket is also kind of uh, uh, unfortunately an oversimplification of it. Yeah, so way yeah, so like the the federal income tax article here, I think is uh, a little narrow in scope. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so that I think that that's sort of the sensationalist part. I mean, at at the end of the day, I think where where we want to look and and we encourage this and the way that we look at some of these articles, um, Amazon. In, just like a lot of these big conglomerates, it's very difficult to compare a small business to an international organization at the end of the day. It's very, very difficult, and you really have to look at the big picture. So, I mean, one thing that we encourage everyone in terms of, like, if you're running a business, even if you're running a sole proprietorship, you have to look at your tax load as as an aggregate of all sorts of different avenues. Like Gus mentioned, like there's the HST impact, there's the payroll impact, there's the personal one. And like, I, I know for a fact that like our, our clients are never satisfied if we go to them and say, well, your corporate taxes are zero this year. And they're like, well, how much how much are we paying personally? Like, what are we? What do we have to recognize? How many dividends are we getting? Like, there, there's a million questions that come out of it. So yeah. having articles that just talk about the one line is is not uh, is not uh, sensible. So by all means, uh, ca- let's let's caution our, our listeners. Make sure you're reading it in the right context. So anyway, we'll we'll move on. We'll move on to the next segment uh, of our show, shall we? Let's talk taxes. So what's new and exciting with the world of tax planning and compliance, guys? All right. Speaking speaking of taxes, uh, so. 
one one of the one of the questions we get. So a reminder to everybody who's contributing to their RSPs, you got to get that sorted out in the next uh, month and a half or so. Is yeah, it? yeah. No, it's yeah. it's tax season, and you know that's that's kind of the number one question we always get around this time is uh, whether or not I should contribute to my RSPs. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's a very generic question. That so has, like a, it's like an elevator. You walk into an elevator, they, yeah. they see you with the CPA bag. Should I contribute to my yeah, RSPs? Yeah. I'll be like, do you, do you have a two hours? Let's sit down <laughs> over a coffee and I can I can get into this with you. But uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a very, you know, easy, easy question, uh, a harder answer, right? And, yeah. and, and I, I, I always hate to say this, but it, it, it depends. It really does. Um, so uh, like, you know, I want to say the number one question to ask yourself is what it, what is your financial situation as a whole? Um, you know, we always recommend to clients if, you know, if you have debt, absolutely take care of that first being, you know, your, your, your credit card debt or your high interest debt. Um, and then even maybe moving on to things like your, your line of credits, if you have yeah automobile financing, like yeah, get, get yeah. those debt burdens yeah. out of the way. So first. to contribute into the RSP before that is, is a, a silly decision. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure people will argue with that and say, Oh, well, it kind of it depends on what your return is going to be. And here's my rebuttal to that. Um, you, you, you just don't know what your return is. Yeah. Gonna be, you you right? know what it is yeah. when you pay off the debt. Yeah. The return is the interest you save. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and to be fair, this is this is the other the the other issue. There's confusion around uh, the the investment industry. It's like yeah. where, where are you going to put that money? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you can make a ton of money and maybe your return is in excess of the cost of debt. But more times than not, you're you're putting yourself in a disadvantaged situation from a cash flow perspective, and you're paying interest. Right. So, um, you know, we always recommend from a from a simple advice like take care of your debt first. Yeah. And it, it really depends on on your strategy kind of going forward. So, if you're if you're hoping that by the time that you hit retirement. Uh, you're going to have you're going to need to withdraw a steady amount of income. You're going to need to be using your RSPs, like the funding you have available, any insurance, all that other stuff that goes in. It it really depends on that long term strategy, right, guys? You you have to you have to plan ahead, and and your answer could be instead of dumping money into RSPs, perhaps reinvest it into your business. Perhaps like give a loan to another business. Like there's a lot of alternatives that that people don't necessarily think of when their mind immediately goes to RSPs. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, there's there's a bunch of other factors to um, consider before just deciding to contribute to the account. So let's say you're not one of uh, your average Canadians here that owes what is it now like one one. A dollar or two dollars to every dollar, dollar that, that they, they make is, yeah. is in debt. So, say you're fortunate enough to have that money. Um, let's let's kind of dive into understanding what the account actually is, right? So, your RRSP account is a tax deferral strategy. So that doesn't mean you know a lot of people will deposit the money and they'll get their tax refund and they're so excited. Oh, I'm getting money back from the government. That's great, but that's that's in lieu of reducing your income now 
and getting taxed on it in future years. And what do we all know about the tax rates? They're, they're gonna be going up in future years, but right. you gotta hope that your, your earning potential into your retirement is not going to exceed your earning potential now. Yeah. So that's, that's a really important factor to, to understand is what, what is your current situation in terms of how much money you're earning? Do you anticipate earning money more in future years? Because maybe it's better to save that uh, so if you're in a preferential tax bracket and you're earning, you know, $50,000, but say, you know, uh, you're early on into your career and, you know, 10 years down the line, it's going to double and you're going to be making 100000 Okay, well, wait until that time where you're making 100000 and that contribution room is going to be yeah. more effective. And I mean, when you get down to the bare calculations, you have to consider how much how much taxes are you saving? Like just like you mentioned, if you're if you're making 50k and every dollar you contribute towards your RSPs is saving you 20 cents in taxes, well, once you're making 150k, every dollar will save you 40 to 50 cents in taxes, right? So it, it really depends. Like, yeah, there there's there's a little bit of a game plan that needs to go on, and and that's why our answer is always going to be it depends. Now, the the one in, the one thing we have to make for your uh, for your information, just one recommendation is get going with a discussion like figure out with your accountants figure out with your advisors figure out what the optimal amount is for you and bring them the information that they need what is your strategy what do you hope to do what's your five to ten year sort of time frame what's what's going to be your earning power down the road yeah like these are all considerations that we try to go through with clients and it's not it's not a simple topic and it's not uh you're never going to find an answer that's very simple although you know what media media loves putting out these articles like, oh, contribute to your RSPs. Do all. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of alternatives. Don't forget that RSPs, here, here's my personal view on them. They lock you in. You can't move the money out when you need it. Uh, there's You basically have to wait until retirement before you do anything yeah, without yeah. without incurring any additional consequences. So there's a lot of alternatives. And, and if you, exactly, if you're fortunate enough to, to do things that, like uh, put it into your business or put it into other places, there's a lot more you can do with that money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so let's, let's talk about um, some of the, uh, I guess, misconceptions behind the RRSPs as well, right? So... Um, so some some topics that that often come up for us is okay um well you know i'm uh, in a situation where i have uh, a spouse and the spouse is earning less income uh like can i contribute to a spousal plan like what would you say for that igor like you that just makes the, the calculation just that much more complicated, right? The the real question is if you want to contribute to a spousal RSP plan, the the treatment's pretty pretty similar in terms of the impact on tax, but you have to determine what the difference is per dollar that you contribute. Like how much are you going to be saving uh, in terms of your income? And the other question is. Again, is RSPs the right vehicle to do it? Could you instead contribute it to your TFSA personally, right? Yes, take the tax hit right now. But if you're in an income tax bracket where you can do a little bit more with the money or, or pay down the debt or do something else, uh, that probably is a better recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to our favorite set. Well, our future favorite. This is the inaugural podcast, but our future favorite segment of the podcast 
Our phone lines have been blowing up. Why don't we take some time to field a couple calls and check in with our audience? Igor, why don't we take some calls? <laughs> That's excellent. So given that this is the inaugural podcast and, and we're, we probably have three to five listeners. And <laughs> no one's actually calling. No one's in. actually calling the phones. But we did uh, we did do a workaround uh, in case something like this happened. We also don't even have a phone line here. But <laughs> so we, we actually went to to Reddit. Reddit being uh, one of the biggest time sinks I have in my life. Um, so we went to Reddit and we looked at a few of the questions that are being asked this week. Uh, just to do general taxation, everything else. So we're gonna we're gonna try to answer these questions now. Gus and I don't have any predetermined knowledge of of the questions, and uh, we're basically gonna address them right as they come up. So let's uh, let's get started, shall we, Gus? Yeah, it let's sounds start good. With our first question. So two years ago, I started my first drop shipping business. Uh, I filed my taxes with a broker and had to pay around four and a half thousand in taxes. So now I'm unsure if I should incorporate my business or stay as a sole proprietor. That's that's a great question, um, and I think every small business person considers at one point or another, or another whether or not to incorporate. Right. So. Um, Let's just talk quickly about like advantages and disadvantages of a, a incorporation. So, um, just quickly from a non-tax perspective, there's ob- obviously some benefits in terms of limitation of liability of the corporations. Uh, like a corporation is its own entity; um, it's it's taxed as its own entity as well as it has liability. Uh, uh, so, like, if you're operating a business where you feel that um, there's there's a chance, you know, you could you could it's potentially litigious, then uh, you may want to incorporate. Yeah, indeed. There, there's also the the obvious uh, the obvious thought that there's compliance costs associated with it. So, it, once you do incorporate, you got to pay your accountant, you got to pay the lawyer. Like, you're looking to one to two thousand bucks a year just from keeping the the corporation going. There's there's certainly a lot more that's available to you in terms of tax planning, keeping money in the company, reinvesting in the business, like how you deal with expenses and everything else. But at the end of the day, it's going to come with a cost. So our advice is always to, if you're making, let's say, six figures in the company, yeah, absolutely. There's there's certainly a good a good way to say, you know what, I'm going to spend one to two to three percent of of annual revenues on an accountant and lawyer and get the stuff out of the way. And it'll give you a lot of flexibility down the road. It's investing into the future. If you're just holding down a company for, let's say, the one employer that you have and you're engaged through a contract and whatnot, it may not be worth it. And yeah, probably yeah. Isn't. I think size is definitely a factor. Um, of course, again, the industry where you're in and uh, like if you're required to incorporate but yeah like if if you're you know only paying uh, like a thousand to two thousand dollars in taxes like like you, you said Igor like that's your compliance cost as well so that's going to be on top of it but as you have more income again this this becomes a a, a very advantageous vehicle for for tax deferral because you don't need to take out all that money from your corporation either you can reinvest it uh, you can invest in other assets or loan out money to other corporations like you said previously uh, so that that's some of the advantages as well. Great. Let's go to question two. So I'm currently preparing my taxes and my spouse and I share a car. So I'm just wondering how to record those car expenses for business purposes on my personal tax return. Yes, the car expenses. Okay, well, uh, you know, 
there's always so the first thing to to talk about is how are you tracking um, personal versus business, and that's that's very important. A lot of people don't end up, uh, you know doing a full mileage log, which is something that's actually required by uh, the Canada Revenue Agency, uh, if in case you ever get audited. But, um, you know, a lot of people just throw out a number that, oh, yeah, you know, 50% of the time I'm using uh, my car for business purposes. Uh, so th- that that's usually the first challenge is, you know, when clients come to us, they haven't been tracking their mileage. Yeah. So and they um, usually come to us once the CRA has already knocked on their door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and it's hard hard to defend at that point, right? So uh, ways to do this, to do this or solutions like uh, for us, there's there's a lot of applications you can use. Like just like go into the app store and and like search mileage log uh, application. There's tons of them. So I I'd, I'd suggest if you're okay with the application knowing your whereabouts, this is the easiest way to yeah, track. And, and guess what? The, your your phone already knows your whereabouts. <laughs> yeah, this so this maybe, mileage application the is, be any different. <laughs> yeah, the the benefit outweighs the cost in this case. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you can use a, a standard log to track it. Um, uh, a good way to do it also is if, if you're trying to go back now and try and figure it out, what I usually do is I, I usually have a car repair at the start of the year and a car repair at the end of the year. And you usually have to take your mileage at, at, at those car repair, uh, like when you're when you're going to take yep. your car in, right? So uh, you can take the difference there and, and estimate by, you know, going on a Google Maps, you know how many days uh, a week you're going to work and you can kind of try and calculate backwards as best as he can. So that's a good second way to try yeah. and attempt that. And don't forget that like once once you get that special form from your employer saying that on your personal tax return you can deduct the cost of the vehicle, you can also include things like automobile insurance, repairs and maintenance, a depreciation on the vehicle. So depending on how much you paid for it and depending on what the ultimate cost was, you may also be eligible to claim depreciation. You need to keep those records because last thing you want is to, to get, let's say, a, a, a decent refund from the from the CRA because you have all of these vehicle expenses and they ask you, okay, why don't you send me your mileage log and your repairs and maintenance receipts and and you're basically caught with your pants down, if you will. So so there, there's a lot of record keeping that has to happen at the personal level, but it, at the end of the day, it's worth it, right? And also so one thing to consider is even when you do get that consent from the employer that you can deduct vehicle expenses on your personal tax return, you're going to have to add back any mileage they pay you as income. So it's not it's not just a free-for-all. <laughs> yeah, so you can't double dip. Yeah, if they've already paid you money by way of mileage, you need to add that to income and then deduct your actual expenses. You may find by doing a calculation with your accountant that you're actually better off just not claiming anything at all because perhaps what they pay you in mileage outweighs your actual cost of the vehicle. Yeah, and that oftentimes for our clients is is the the right answer and and two it's it's less burdensome for them to to track all these expenses keep the receipts and ha- keep a mileage log as well yeah well, good question all right guys uh, as usual we've run over time so we're gonna we're gonna put an end to today's podcast we'll we'll obviously be back uh th- thanks again for your patronage thanks for tuning in hopefully we were able to to i guess quench your thirst when it comes to accounting and tax questions hopefully we discuss some things that are, that are relatively interesting we'll certainly be back and uh and and sort of uh chew the fat a little bit more about what you know what's going on in accounting and finance today 
Yeah, yeah. And we'd love to, to hear from you. If you have any feedback for us or you want to reach out to us, we're uh, available um, www.kpcpa.ca or uh, we're on all social media channels as well. Just search KNP CPAs and you'll, you'll find us. Great. Great having everyone. Goodbye. This has been Abacus Briefs with Gus and Igor. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast delivery service you use. For questions, comments, and the like, email us at info at kpcpa.ca. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at kp underscore cpa. Until next time. <laughs>